like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning, today when we, of course, celebrate political freedom, uh, but those of us in our Lord Jesus Christ recognize that we have ultimate freedom in Him and through Him, and so we worship Him this morning. Uh, I invite you to turn in God's Word to Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, we are in the book of Nehemiah, as you know, and we are looking at chapter 9, which includes one of the great prayers of Scripture. It's a corporate prayer of confession. Uh, it's also pretty substantial, so we won't read the whole thing. We'll read from verses uh, 5 to uh, 21. Uh, but this is an occasion where God's people recognize their disobedience to God's law. They come together and they confess their guilt before God. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. Uh, let's hear God's word together, starting at 5b. Uh, the Levites say to the people, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusites, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is on this day, or to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. But, verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously. And stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. 
stop there. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we approach your throne this morning through your son Jesus, and we confess that however ardent our praise is, however vigorous our adoration, your majesty and glory far exceeds our praise. Our praise doesn't do justice to the reality of who you are and what you've done. You are great, O God. And we confess this morning, God, that you made us and made all things. We owe our life and every blessing that we have to you. We praise you and we thank you for the many blessings that we enjoy in this life. The food you put on our table, Lord. The way you provide for us day after day. Father, we also acknowledge that we love you because you first loved us. It is your gracious initiative and not our striving that has made us your people. We belong to you because you drew us to yourself and we recognize your grace in making us a people. And we confess also your faithfulness to your word. You are a God who does everything you say you will do and not one word that you have given us will ever fail or prove false. So Father, we thank you for your unyielding, unfailing faithfulness And we acknowledge, Lord, our fickleness and half-heartedness in your service. So often, Lord, we put our desires ahead of your desire and do what we want rather than what you want. We confess our unrighteousness. We ask in the name of Jesus for pardon. And we thank you that you have promised to give it in his name and for his sake. We thank you for that forgiveness. And we ask that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to lead lives that are truly honoring to you. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, We ask that you would be pleased to speak to every heart that's here and make yourself known to us. Amen. Have you ever uh, spoken to anyone who uh, has maintained that the God in the Old Testament is different from the God in the New Testament? God of the Old Testament, full of wrath. God of the New Testament, full of mercy and love. That sharp distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament has a long history. You can go back thousands of years to the uh, early uh, church and you'll see people making that same distinction. The problem with the distinction, of course, is it's unbiblical. Uh, Some of the most vivid descriptions of God's judgment in Scripture are to be found on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the most beautiful passages concerning the mercy of God are to be found in the Old Testament. Indeed, the passage that we are looking at today is one of those high points. It is a tribute uh, to the mercy that God shows to his people. So we affirm that there is one God in both the Old Testament and New, and he is a God characterized by justice and mercy to his people. Again, the heart of this passage, the heartbeat of our text today is God's stubborn mercy toward a stubborn people. Uh, They are resolved to rebel, but he is resolved to save and have compassion. Uh, This prayer offered to God by the Israelites uh, has that theme at its very center, Uh, The prayer reviews Israel's history, and as it does so, it traces two themes. The theme of Israel's persistent rebellion, despite God's goodness, and then the complementary theme of God's continued patience with his people and his continued steadfast love. The The dark thread of Israel's unbelief is set next to the white thread of God's faithfulness. It's the very core of this prayer. Now, this prayer is offered on the occasion of um, a time of corporate repentance and confession before God. You may recall that uh, 
In the previous chapter, Nehemiah, a great leader among God's people, leads the Jews to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It's a significant feat for God's people. And a few days after that, they gather in solemn assembly, seventh, uh, seventh month of the year, to hear God's law read to them. And as they hear God's law, uh, they are cut to their heart. Um, they recognize that they have not lived according to the covenant that God had given to Moses, that they had not lived according to the word of God, and they are grieved. But on that occasion, at least, Israel's leaders say, no, 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 this is not a time for grieving. This is a time for celebrating. This is a festive time. Uh, this was a time in the seventh month when they celebrated the Feast of Booths. It was a time of remembering God's goodness. It was a time of uh, feasting and celebrating. That wasn't the appropriate time to mourn and repent. But having done that and having come to the end of the month, uh, they are now ready to return to this act of solemn repentance and confession before God. And as we look at their prayer, as we look at this prayer of repentance and confession, I want us to note three things. First, in this prayer, God's people begin with worship. They get to confession, but they begin with a focus on God himself. God's people in this prayer begin with worship. Second, in this prayer, they confess God's inexhaustible mercy. And third, they rest in this mercy. God's people begin with worship, they confess this inexhaustible mercy, and they rest in that mercy. So it's significant, starting at verse 5, that when they start praying together to God, they don't begin with their needs. They don't begin with a confession. God, we are guilty before you. They get to that, as we'll see, but they start by remembering the God to whom they pray. Uh, pray. And in this respect, the prayer is like the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer doesn't begin with our needs. Lord, I need this and I need this. It begins with the glory of God. It begins with worship, and that's how they start. There's a uh, second part of verse 5, a word of praise. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Again, before they get to confession, they begin with God, and they praise him for who he is. God is worthy of our praise and worship, verse 6 tells us, because he made everything. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made the heaven and the heaven of, heaven of heavens with all their host. Now, host here uh, can refer to angels or stars or perhaps both. I think it's likely that it's both. God made the heavens and he made the stars and he made angelic beings. None of those things have any existence independent of God. He summoned them into existence. And he summoned us into existence. The fundamental truth about human beings that we uh, readily forget is that we are made, we are creatures. God created us, and he made us in his image, and he made plants and animals to fill the earth, and he made the seas and everything that fills the ocean. From the mightiest archangel to the lowliest butterfly, God made everything. And because he is our maker, and because he is the sustainer of all things, it is fitting that we should adore him. That's the connection that's made for us in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Note the connection between the fact that God created everything and the fact that we owe him worship. Revelation 4, 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We are made. God owns us. 
And as his creatures, we ought to praise him and adore him for all that he is. So we worship God because he's our maker. Uh, We worship God because he has taken the initiative to make us his people. Look at verse 7. Notice the parallel between you are the Lord, you alone, you made everything. And then verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. Abraham. Uh, why is Israel the people of God? Why, why do they belong to him? It's because he has taken initiative. He has chosen their forefather Abraham to be the fountainhead of his people, and they are his because he has given grace to them to draw them to himself. It's his gracious initiative that explains why they're the people of God. It's like First John says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Why are we in God's house? Why do we belong to him? because he, in grace and kindness, drew us to himself. And our response to that gracious initiative should be praise and adoration. Thank you, God, that you didn't leave me where you found me, but drew me to yourself. And third, they worship God because he keeps his promises. Mention is made in verse eight of the promise that God makes to Abraham, the promise that he is going to give his descendants a land, in the land of Canaan, and the people Acknowledge the fact that God has kept his promise. For you are righteous. Nothing that, ever, that God commits himself to doing, nothing that he says to us will ever fail. He is a God who keeps all of his words to his people. He is faithful, and as a result, we ought to adore him. Notice what we learn about worship in this opening section of the prayer. Uh, worship begins with the truth about God. They stop and they remember who he is. By faith, they behold the majesty of God. They remember that he is their creator. He is the one who made them into a people. He is faithful to them. And as they see the truth about God, they respond with worship and adoration. Worship begins, praise begins with beholding the truth about God and responding with delight and adoration. It's a bit like when you uh, see a beautiful sunset. First, you see the loveliness of the sunset, and the response is what? To turn to the person next to you and go, isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? At the heart of worship is the glory of God, which we see by faith in God's word to us in scripture, and then the response is joy and delight and praise. That's what we do when we gather together as God's people on Sunday. Uh, We don't just sing, right? Singing as such by itself is not worship. Singing becomes worship when it is a response to the truth about who God is. So we gather together, and together we behold our great God, and then we respond to his glory with song and joy and adoration. It's the truth about God that is at the very center of our worship. By the way, I think there's a great deal that we can learn from them about prayer in, in terms of their priorities here. I've said this before, but many of us are very quick to rush to our petitions and our prayers. So hopefully you have a time every day, maybe even a couple of times every day, where you pray to God. And the temptation for us is just to say, Lord, do this, do this, do this. Heal this person, heal this marriage, give me strength for work, help me financially. Now, is it wrong to pray those things? No. We should come to God with our requests and needs. He's our Father, and He loves uh, for us to come to Him. But what we often neglect to do is to begin with this focus on God. Uh, we fail to pause and consider who it is we're praying to. 
to, we fail to consider that he's our creator, our sustainer, the one through whose grace uh, we have come to belong to the people of God. Uh, we should begin there by considering the truth about God and spending time in thanksgiving and praise and adoration. And as you do that, as you turn your heart and mind to God, I think you'll find that your prayer life is enriched. You have a deeper communion with the Lord. So what we see then, first thing in their prayer, is they begin with a focus on God before they get to their own confession. The heart, though, of this prayer, which begins in verse 9 and goes all the way to verse 31, is a review of Israel's history, emphasizing God's stubborn mercies to a stubborn people. You have these two themes, God's persistent goodness and Israel's persistent rebellion. In verses 9 through 15, uh, we are told about God's goodness to the Israelites in the Exodus event and his goodness in the wilderness experience of Israel. Long ago, about a thousand years before this in Israel's history, the Jews were captives. They were the slaves of the Egyptians and their life was hard. But God, who loved them, looked on their affliction and he intervened with acts of great judgment against the Egyptians. Uh, he poured down his judgment on the enemies of his people and he liberated them from captivity. He brought them out singing, he brought them out with wealth. Uh, but then, by the Red Sea, they were trapped as the Egyptian army, the chariots of the Pharaoh, thundered after, after them to destroy the people of God after they've left captivity. And so God again shows up and he parts the Red Sea and the people of God travel on dry land. But then the waters close over the chariots of Egypt and over Pharaoh. The army of Pharaoh drowns, it sinks like a stone to the sea because God intervened to rescue his people. God is good and his goodness is reflected in this passage in the salvation he gives to his people. And then God doesn't just save them and let them wander around the wilderness on their own. God saves them and he guides them. And he guides them specifically, if you know the story, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's goodness is revealed in that he rescues us and then continues to guide us. God's goodness is further revealed in that he teaches his people how to live wisely. We're told in this passage that through Moses, God gave his people right rules, verse 13, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. He gave them laws that were wise and good. He taught them how to live as his people. And finally, he provided for them. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And he told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. God provided for the physical needs of his people, gave them bread from heaven throughout the wilderness uh, wanderings, and he gave them water from the rock. He met their every need. Now, how would you have expected the Israelites to respond to God at this point? They have experienced one undeserved mercy after another. They're saved from their captors, they're fed in the wilderness, they're guided, everything they want from God, he has given to them. You might have expected, especially if you don't know the story, that they would have said, Lord, you're amazing. We're gonna to respond to your undeserved goodness with obedience. But that is the opposite of what they in fact did, according to verse 16. They and our fathers acted presumptuously. 
and stiffened their neck. It's an expression referring to stubbornness. And did not obey your commandments. So God does all of these great things for the Israelites. And their response to him is to reject him and his will and do what they want. They refused to obey, verse 17, and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. God did all of these great things, but it didn't make an impact. They disregarded what God had done for them, and they followed their own sinful desires. Now think about how hideous that is. Think about how wicked that is. Like It's one thing for a person to receive all the earthly blessings God has to give and respond with rebellion. Like That's an expression of gross ingratitude and wickedness. Right? The person who, um, in God's mercy and grace, is given good food and good friends and satisfying work, and he gets to see sunsets and he gets to enjoy the blessings of this life, if that person rebels against God, that's an act of ingratitude and that's wicked. But think about how much more wicked it is to experience not only the earthly blessings of God, but also to experience his salvation and to still rebel against him. The sins of God's people are even greater expressions of wickedness and ingratitude because God has done even more for them. And that's how the Israelites respond. God has had mercy on them and they rebel. They even get to the point where they build a golden calf for themselves, an idol, false god, and they say, this is the god that saved us. Let's worship him rather than the Lord. Or let's worship the Lord in a way different than what he commanded. This is an act of idolatry. Never mind that God saved us. We're going to give our allegiance to a different God. Now, what would you expect God to do with these people at this point? He shows up. He shows them nothing but goodness. He brings them out, makes them his people, gives them his law. And they reject him and start worshiping another God a few days after they, they receive uh, the law. How would you respond? Well, we wouldn't be surprised if the story went on to read and God rejected them. They were no longer his people. He forsook them. But in fact, here's what we're told. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. They respond with ingratitude and rebellion, and God forgives them. They worship another God, and God forgives them. We're told that he doesn't take away the pillar of cloud or fire. He continues to provide food for them. Uh, for 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. That's astonishing. Here's this incredible act of wickedness on the part of God's people. And he responds by pardoning them, and continuing to pour out his blessings upon them. What that reveals about God is that he is prepared to forgive even the darkest sin. The worst thing that you have ever done is not beyond the mercy and forgiveness of God. The mercy of God goes deeper than the most terrible thing that you've ever committed or have ever done. Uh, there might still be that one sin or few sins that you look back on in your past and they haunt you. And you think about all the painful consequences that resulted from those acts of disobedience. And so the past casts a long shadow that envelops the present. How should we respond to that kind of anguish over past sins? So I think this passage would encourage us uh, to look to God, recognize that he forgave even that sin 
and is willing to pardon even that sin. And we ought to receive his mercy and seek to live for his glory in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in the present. We leave our past to God, receive his grace, and move forward. I think there's one other thing we can learn from this. Uh, Notice how patient God is, not just with individuals, but with his people collectively. Uh, They worship the golden calf, they rebel against his law, and he's patient, and he forgives them, and he gives them another chance, and as we'll see, another chance after that, and another chance after that. But if God is patient with his people, we should be as well. Now, I can imagine that, you know, there was a, there's a very pious Israelite in Moses' day who, when he saw the golden calf incident, probably looked for a different people. Like, these people are heathen, pagans, they're worshiping false gods. I need to go find a different people, right? The purists. Uh, but remarkably, God was more patient than those people, forgave them and gave, uh, gave them another chance. Here's what I think that means for us today. Uh, we, obviously, we want our local church to become increasingly conformed to the word of God and the will of God, but we also have to be patient. That process can sometimes be slow. Uh, now, don't misunderstand me. If there's a church that is full of doctrinal compromise and uh, tolerates moral cor- uh, pollution among its people and leadership, there's, that's a time to leave that local church and find a more faithful church. All right? So there is a time for that. But the other extreme that we can fall into is that we will look at our church and we'll say, okay, it's not doing that, it's not doing that. God's word says this. And then we will prematurely abandon it to find a purer church. Uh, It's very instructive that when Paul, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he writes to a church that is full of all kinds of problems. They're experiencing division. Uh, They're experiencing uh, problems in the way they're observing Lord's Supper. They're tolerating sexual immorality. And yet... Paul describes them as the saints of God, and he gives thanks for them, right? Uh, Paul is patient. He has hope for, for those people, and he prays for those people. And that should be our posture. Yeah, or is the church always perfect? No. Does it have flaws? Yes. Uh, but our response to that should be to pray for God's mercy on our local church and to work for the progress of the local church, not jump ship as soon as we deem that it's not quite pure enough for our tastes. I forget who said this, he was some kind of seminary professor, I think you've probably heard this saying, that if you find a pure church, a perfectly pure church, don't join it, you'll ruin it, right? You're a sinner, you're, you're going to create the impurity even if that doesn't already exist. Be patient with the church, because God is patient with his people. That same theme is, the theme is then picked up at a different stage of Israel's history. So, God has preserved them in the wilderness, but then he brings them to the land. Uh, He causes them to defeat their enemies, and life in the land is very good. Here's how it's summed up uh, in our passage. Uh, Verse 25. They captured captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. 9.25. God takes his people through the wilderness, causes them to defeat their enemies, and enjoy a good land. And life is very good. Now, how would you expect God's people to respond at this stage of their history? Lord, thank you. You've been good to us in giving us the fig trees 
in our own home, and we love you and obey you. Not so. So 22 through 25 gives us God's goodness to them in the land, and then 26 to 31 shows us again what the response is. Nevertheless, despite God's goodness, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Once again, God blesses his people. Their response, rebel against his law, kill the messengers that God sends to remind them, and persist in their hard-hearted rebellion. So God judges them. We're told that he causes his enemies, or Israel's enemies, to have mastery over them. They are afflicted. And in their affliction, what do they do? Lord, have mercy on us. Save us from the misery that we've brought on ourselves. And God does. And he does again and again. And what do they do once they've been delivered from the hand of their enemies and have rest? They rebel again and again. Uh, here's how it's summed up in verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you deliver them according to your mercies. So if earlier we've seen that God is ready to forgive great sin, in this passage we see that God is ready to persistently forgive sin again and again and again. 10,000 times, 20,000 times, God is ready to pardon the rebellion of his people. The mercies of God are in an inexhaustible well from which we ought to continuously draw when we fall short. God is prepared to forgive you time after time. This should be, I think, a, a tremendous encouragement towards uh, those of you who may be struggling with a, a specific pattern of sin in your life that you deeply want to stop committing but find it difficult to do so. Perhaps you, you struggle with a short temper. You blow up at your spouse and your children. You don't want to, but you find yourself doing that again and again. And you wonder, God, can, can you really forgive me again? the 200th time? And the answer of this passage is yes. Yes, I can forgive you. And I will forgive you if you come and seek forgiveness. Or perhaps you're struggling with pornography. Uh, you hate pornography. You want to live a life that's pure and holy to God. Uh, but you're hounded by this uh, lust for impure images. And you find yourself going back and back and you grieve over it. It's not where you want to be. Is God ready to forgive you for the 2,000th time? Yes. Yes, he is. He's, he's ready to have mercy on you. Of course, Scripture says more than this. God is not only prepared to forgive our sins, but through the Holy Spirit, he gives us power to increasingly kill it. And we need to recognize that as well. And we should be striving to put this sin to death. But when we fall, again, the mercies of God are right there, down at the very bottom, ready to pardon us. That should bring tremendous encouragement to those who struggle, who desire to do the will of God, but find themselves falling again and again. Now, what's the objection to that teaching, inevitably? Okay, all right, if you say that God pardons every time and his mercies are inexhaustible, well, that means I can sin with impunity, confess, and do it again, and confess. Uh, two responses to that objection. First of all, I think that objection fails to recognize the nature of uh, asking God for forgiveness and repenting. Like, to ask God to forgive you of your sins implies you really want to be done with those sins, right? That's what sincerely asking for forgiveness implies. 
If you go to God and say, God, forgive me, but in your heart, you're like, I can't wait to get back to the sin, there's a sense in which your request for forgiveness is insincere. Right? Like if a spouse, a husband betrays his wife, and then he comes back to his wife and he says, I'm so sorry, but in his heart he's saying, I can't wait to do it again. That's an insincere request for forgiveness and a desire of reconciliation. That's the first thing to know. A, a genuine coming to God and desiring his forgiveness implies that there's also a hatred for sin and a desire to turn from it. Those two go together. But second thing I want you to notice is that when a person experiences the inexhaustible love of God, that has a way of melting their heart. The, the mercies of God melt our hard-heartedness. Uh, here's how the theologian and New Testament scholar D.A. Carson puts it. Never, never underestimate the power of the love of God to break down and transform the most amazingly hard individuals. The greatest force in the world for personal transformation is God's love. The effect it has on a person when they see it is not to intensify their rebellion because they, you know, can, they can get away with it. The effect is to melt their heart and to say, God, I'm tired of this filth. I want to live for you. Uh, Les Miserables by uh, Victor Hugo, 19th century novel, it's been turned into a film and a really wonderful musical. If you ever get a chance to see it, recommend it. Uh, but in that novel, there's a character by the name of Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean has spent many years in prison, and he's been hardened and embittered by his time in jail. And he comes out, and he finds it difficult to get work. He's a convict. Uh, many innkeepers won't take him in because of his past. Uh, but one night, there's a kind bishop that takes him in, says, hey, you can sleep at my house. And how does Jean Valjean repay the kindness of the bishop? He steals all the family's silver at night and runs away. Now the next day, Jean Valjean is brought back to the bishop. Uh, the three police officers who bring him back suspect that he has stolen the silver. And so they bring him to the bishop, and the bishop sees him and says, Hey, you forgot to grab the silver candlesticks that go with the silver. Make sure you grab those as well. They're worth 200 francs. The policemen are surprised by this, and they let him go. Uh, now, if the bishop had said otherwise and said, this is the man who stole my silver, Jean Valjean would have spent the rest of his life languishing in a cell. So what does the bishop do? He says, oh, I gave it to him. It was a gift, including these candlesticks. Then he turns to Jean Valjean and he says, look, take the silver and become an honest man. And Jean Valjean is undone. That one act of goodness and love changes him forever. It melts his heart and it does what prison couldn't do. He becomes a generous compassionate individual having experienced love, undeserved love. And when we experience God's love in that way, it has the same effect. When we look back on our lives and we see that we have fallen short of his will again and again and again, and he has pardoned us again and again and again, the, the, the response it produces is not, Lord, I want to continue in sin, but Lord, you're amazing. Thank you for your love. I want to be done with that nonsense and live for you. So the love of God has a softening effect on us. And of course, the supreme expression of that love in Jesus Christ. God loved us even to the point that he gave his only son to redeem us. When you see God's love displayed so lavishly in the gospel, in the face of Jesus Christ, you can't help, unless you're stone-hearted, but respond with a reciprocating love and adoration and obedience. The love of God melts our hearts. Now, how should we respond to these persistent mercies of God? 
see that God is ready to forgive his people again and again, how should we respond? And we see Israel's response in, in, in verses 32 through 37. Uh, thus far they have surveyed the history of their ancestors and confessed their corporate guilt, but now they confess their own unrighteousness before God. They own their guilt. Uh, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. So the first thing they say is, look, all the miseries we're currently ex experiencing, that's just. Uh, keep in mind that at this stage, Israel is no longer an independent nation. Uh, she is under the thumb of the Persian Empire. They're servants of the Persian king. It's a time of difficulty. And this difficulty has been brought about by their wickedness. And, and the Jews say, no, we acknowledge that this is right. We deserve this. For, we have dealt faith, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Nehemiah 9, 33. So they own their guilt. They confess their sin before God. They don't try to minimize it or rationalize it. They, they come before God and they say, this is who we are. And when we sin against God, we don't try to explain away our guilt or minimize how bad it is. The first step towards restoration is to come into the presence of God, to put our hands up and to say, Lord, it's that bad. The condemnation of your word is just. I take responsibility for it. But then notice, they don't wallow in their guilt. They don't stay there in a position of just guilt. They cast themselves on the mercies of God. They rest in the mercies of God. Look at verses 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So they're describing the, the subjugated situation that they're in. And this is implicitly a request for God to show mercy to them and deliver them. And the reason I say that is because again and again, in the history of Israel that they've surveyed, uh, when God's people are afflicted and they call out to God in their affliction, what does he do? He shows them mercy. And so this is part of that same pattern where they're saying to God, this is our situation. Have mercy on us. And they cast themselves on God. And here the Israelites teach us how we ought to respond when we fall short. Yes, we confess our sins to God, and then we, it's not that we try to make ourselves clean by strenuous moral performance. No, we confess our sins, and then we cast ourselves unreservedly on his mercies and experience fresh supplies of grace at every point of need. When we fall short, come to God, own it, and then rejoice in his free mercy, love, and forgiveness. Uh, this is the privilege that we have as his people. Uh, we're not called to wallow. We're not called to try to take our own guilt away. We're called to rest in the mercy that he freely bestows upon all those who ask. May God give us grace to rest in his mercy and live for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, you are more compassionate gracious, merciful, and loving than we might have expected. Your word teaches us that your kindness to us is inexhaustible. And so we take heart, Lord, and we draw near to, through your son, Jesus, and give you thanks for the goodness that you've shown us every day of our lives. Amen.